On January 12, 2010, uh, there was uh, one of the biggest earthquakes in recorded human history in the country of Haiti. I'm sure you remember it. I'm sure you remember seeing the videos of it, reading in Time Magazine about it, watching people's tweets kind of come through as they were showing the damage. It was amazing. In just a matter of seconds, literally 60% of the standing buildings in and around Port-au-Prince were absolutely leveled, and more than 3 million people were left with immediate medical attention. It was one of the greatest disasters in our recent history, certainly one of the greatest disasters in my lifetime. And I remember listening to the reports that were coming out of Haiti after this had happened, and they said one of the real challenges uh, with the earthquake in Haiti was the things that happened long before the earthquake ever took place. You see, years and years and years before that earthquake took place in 2010, the country had made a decision that they didn't need to have very stringent laws in regards to the buildings they would build. And so, unlike America, where you need like 15 permits to build a doghouse in your backyard, if you lived in Haiti, you could build an apartment complex or a house or an office building wherever, whenever, however you wanted to build it. And so the reality was for years, people were living in structures that were not strong enough to hold them, but it just took one minute, just one moment of calamity, and it broke the whole thing, and they realized just how weak it was all along. One of my friends has done a lot of work in Haiti over the last couple of years. Some of you guys have been down there doing a lot of work in Haiti over the last few years. And he was telling me about how remarkable it's been as people have flown in from all over the world to help rebuild a nation that had crumbled. He said these engineers have come in and they're showing them this is how you build a building so it can last in the midst of an earthquake like this. This is how you lay a foundation. He said they've built buildings that were stronger and better, houses that are bigger and stronger than anything they ever had before, yet their greatest needs still in the country of Haiti are tents. I remember him telling me this as I was sitting there eating lunch with him and apparently I had this look on my face. He said, yeah, they need tents. Because although the current buildings are stronger than the ones before, there is a generation that has been raised up that has learned not to trust the structures that are there now. He says, so they'd rather sleep out in the front yard in hopes that things might get better in the future. And I was thinking about this a few months ago as I was teaching in Raleigh, Durham, North Carolina. I was in a room full of uh, leaders in the church and we were wrestling with some of the challenges of our culture here in America, some of the challenges that we have in the church right now. And we're really specifically talking about why it is that this generation, people between the ages of 18 and 30, tend to be leaving the church in alarming rates. And I was sitting there in that group of people, most of whom were over the age of 50, and I asked them the question, I said, why do you think the current generation is leaving the church so quickly? And they told story after story after story of their kids and their grandkids and their nephews and their daughters and their son-in-laws who had grown up in church and who had seen one thing in Scripture and then seen something very different played out in their life. They'd had stories and had heard stories and talked about stories of the power and the presence of God, and yet they lived in a church that seemed to be devoid of His power and His presence. He said, and then it just took one moment for them to realize that the foundation that they had built their faith on was not really the presence of Jesus, but the religion of man. And in moments, the church around them crumbled and they've left. I remember one lady who was sitting to my right that morning. She's kind of in the back side of the room. She raised her hand. She says, Dave, you're 30 years old. You have a church full of people that are fairly young and around that age for the most part. She said, why is it that you've stuck with the church? I thought, man, that's a great question. I thought, man, it's really good. And, and so this morning, I, I want to share with you a few of the things that I shared with her. And, and I want to frame for us what it means to be the people of God gathered with God and for God and sit on mission with God for the glory of God. One of my favorite characters in the scripture is this guy named Ezekiel. We're going to read uh, just a little bit of what he wrote here in just a few minutes. 
But Ezekiel had this amazing story. His story was so much like our story, whether you realize this or not. He grew up in a culture that for a long time was saturated with religion but devoid of the presence of God. And so for years and years and years, he grew up in a culture where people went to temple, where people read their Bibles, where people offered sacrifices and did religion. And he said, but as he would look at it, he realized that there was something missing. And I love the beginning of his book, Ezekiel chapter 1. It says he was 30 years old and four months, you know, right around my age. And he saw the culture that had crumbled around him, and he saw the church that had crumbled around him. He said, and then he saw a vision of God. And I mean, there, there's nothing like in the midst of a culture that has crumbled, in the midst of a church that has crumbled, there's nothing like catching a fresh vision for who God is, what God is about, and what he's up to. And I love it, the next 25 years of Ezekiel's life are completely different because he caught this vision for God. This is what we're going to look at this morning. Uh, towards the end of his life, God gives him this vision of the church. He says, this is what I'm going to do. And this, as our story, this is not just our past. And this isn't just our future, it's also our present. So this is what a church looks like when the Spirit of God has taken hold of them. And he has this vision. I want us to just read through it, and I want us to make sure we hear the vision then we understand what it means for Ezekiel, and then we'll wrestle with what it means uh, for us here in Nashville, Tennessee. Ezekiel 47, um, look at verse 1. I didn't make this up. This is, this is not for me. I love the way this starts. It says, the man brought me back to the entrance of the temple, and so God has sent this angel to give him this vision, and this angel is kind of giving him a tour of this vision. It says, he took me to the entrance of the temple, and I saw water coming out from under the threshold of the temple towards the east. For the temple faced east, and the water was coming down from under the south side of the temple, south of the altar. He then brought me out through the north, and he led me around to the outside of the outer gate facing the east. And the water was flowing there from the south side. So this is the vision I want you to imagine in Ezekiel. His story was so much like so many of you. He grew up in church, got absolutely burned by a person or an institution or an organization. He's almost done with it. And God gives him this vision, and this is the way the vision starts. He starts in the temple, and he says this angel takes him to the doorway of the temple facing east, and he sees this little trickle of water just kind of splashing out. In the Hebrew, the original language that this vision was written in, the word that was written was literally the bubbling up, the springing up of water. So this is a weird sight, right? You imagine you leave here today and you walk out the steps of the cannery and there's water bubbling out of the steps. He says, it's just a trickle. And it's facing to the east. I love the way it keeps going, verse three. It says, a man, as the man went eastward with the measuring line in his hand, he measured off a thousand cubits. That's a third of a mile. He then led me through water that was ankle deep. He measured off another thousand cubits and led me through water that was knee deep. He measured off another thousand and led me through water that was up to the waist. And then he measured off another thousand. And the river was now larger than I could cross because the water had risen and was deep enough to swim in. It was a river that no one could cross. And he asked me, son of man, do you understand this? And so this is the vision that keeps going. It starts with the bubble in the temple. It's running down the stairs of the temple. The temple sat up on this mountain in Jerusalem. And he says, now the water is rushing down the side of this mountain. What started as a trickle has become ankle deep. 
He's walking through it ankle deep. It's like he's in a creek, and then it becomes knee deep, and then it becomes waist deep, and then it's this rushing river. Imagine if you left here today, and you walked out the steps of the cannery, and you headed towards LP Field where the Titans play, and if by the time you left here where the trickle of water had started, by the time you hit the stadium, it was a river so deep you couldn't swim in. And he's seeing this vision that's bubbling up, and I love the angel says, do you understand this? Do you see what's happening? He keeps going. Verse 7. It says, then he led me back to the bank of the river, and when I arrived there, I saw a great number of trees on each side of the river. And he said, this water flows towards the eastern region. It goes down to the Arabah. This was a desert where it enters into the Dead Sea. When it empties into the sea, the water there becomes fresh. Swarms of living creatures will live wherever the river flows, and there will be large numbers of fish because this water flows there and makes the salt water fresh. I love this line. He says, because where the river flows, everything will live. I don't know if you know much about the Dead Sea. It's the lowest point on earth. There are no rivers that run out of the Dead Sea, so everything that spills into it stays there forever. And so all of the salt, all of the minerals, all of the toxins that have filled up this river for millions and millions of years sit there, which means nothing can live. The Dead Sea is nine times saltier than any ocean in the world. There's no fish there. There's no trees on the shore. There's no vegetation around the Dead Sea. It's just absolutely dead. And he goes, this is the vision. Water has trickled out of the temple. It's run through the desert, and now it's plunged into the Dead Sea, the place where nothing lives. And all of a sudden, fish, fish are swimming. This is how the vision ends, verse 10. He says, fishermen will stand along the shore from Engedi to En Agliam. And there will be places for spreading nets. The fish will be of many kinds, like the fish of the great sea. But the swamps and the marshes, they will not become fresh, for they'll be left for salt. Fruit trees of all kinds will grow on both sides of the river. Their leaves will not wither, nor will their fruits fail. Every month they will bear new fruit, because the water that comes from the sanctuary is flowing to them. And their fruit will serve for food, and their leaves for the healing of the nations." And this is the vision that God gives Ezekiel. He says, man, you've seen the culture. The culture's crumbled. You've seen the church. The church doesn't seem much different than the rest of the world, but I want you to understand the reality of what it is that I'm doing. He says, something is bubbling up. And it seems small, but a revolution is coming. And I love verse six, and I hinted at it a second ago, but I don't know if you really noticed it. I love how in the middle of the vision, the angel calls a timeout. He's like, hey, do you understand what it is that you're seeing? He says, Ezekiel, you understand that although you're seeing a river that's flowing and you're seeing fish, you know that God is not talking about restoring the rivers of the world, right? You know that God's not interested in fishing. He says, you understand what this is. He goes, man, this is a picture of what it means to be a part of the kingdom of God, to be a part of the church of God one day in the future. He said, this is what I'm going to do. This is what, what it's going to look like. He says, do you understand this? See, I think for Ezekiel, when he saw this vision, he would have understood exactly what God was saying. I love all of the images. I love all of the symbols that are just so deep in this text. You know, water, if you think about it, water is in the very beginning of the Bible. The first verse of the Bible talks as the Spirit of God is hovering over the waters. The last verse of the Bible talks as the Spirit of God is present there above the waters. All throughout the Bible, water is just this theme that goes and goes and goes because water is something we still understand, right? Isn't it true that on one side of the, the game, water is peaceful and refreshing, and it's the very essence of life, right? You and I have to have it to live. 
It's the reason we love sitting around swimming pools. It's the reason we love going to the ocean. It's the reason you have a calendar hanging in your cubicle of Fiji because there's something about water that's just peaceful and wonderful, right? But isn't it amazing how this peaceful, life-giving, transformative substance like water can also be terrifying and absolutely devastating? You guys remember a couple of years ago when the downtown area here in Nashville was absolutely flooded and no one could stop the water from rising? Do you guys remember in Japan a few years ago when the tsunami hit and there was no force on earth, there was no president, there was no army, there was no delegation that could tell the wave to stop because when water wants to move, water moves. And I think there's a reason that water is connected all throughout the scriptures because it so beautifully helps us see the nature of who God is. He is life-giving. He is peace-giving. He is sustaining and refreshing and wonderful, but he is powerful and unstoppable, and he goes where he wants, when he wants, how he wants. And Ezekiel looks around at his church, and some of you guys, you felt this, right? Have you guys ever sat in a church service and go, man, that feels so much more like a funeral service than the resurrected people of God enjoying the presence of God. Have you guys ever looked around religion and go, man, this, this is dead. And Ezekiel had been there, and he looked in the temple, and he goes, man, nobody in my culture cares. Nobody in my church cares. And God goes, man, you don't see what I see. He says there's something under the threshold of the temple. It is bubbling up. It is the water. It is the presence. It is the power of God. And what seems small here will start a revolution there. It says it's bubbling, it's bubbling, it's bubbling. I love the way that the vision keeps going as it leaves the temple. It goes down the mountain and it starts ankle deep and it becomes knee deep and it becomes waist deep and it's shoulder deep and then he can't even swim in it. And what the angel is helping him see, he says, this is what it looks like to be men and women who are led by the Spirit of God and the presence of God for the glory of God in the world. And I don't know if you ever did this, but when I was a kid, one of my favorite things to do was to play in rivers and in creeks. It was just so much fun, right? I remember I would like find a new creek in the woods and you'd walk through the ankle deep water. And isn't it true that no one is ever terrified of drowning in ankle deep water? It's like when you're in ankle deep water, you're still completely in control, right? But have you ever stood in a river that's a little bit taller than that, knee deep, and all of a sudden you find it tough to keep your balance and then waist deep and you're really struggling? Have you ever been in a river that's over your head and the current is so swift that no matter what you do, you cannot stay in one place, right? Remember there's this rope swing that I used to go to as a kid and the river was so fast, as soon as we would hit the water, by the time we could come up, we were 60 or 70 yards down. And it took us whenever, wherever, however wanted it to take us. And he's taking Ezekiel on this journey. He says, this is what it looks like to be the people of God. He says, there's this bubbling in the temple. It's the power. It's the presence of God. And he says, and the people of God will begin to follow. He says, but the truth is, in the early days, the people of God will still be in control. He says, they'll be walking in ankle-deep water. And although they're going in the direction that the Lord is taking them, they're still in control. And he says, but as the Spirit of God continues to swell inside of the people of God, that which they used to have a lot of control and they have no control over now. And the Spirit of God will take them where he wants them. Such an amazing picture. You know, for us, if we're honest, none of you woke up this morning and read Ezekiel 47 and went, that's the most relevant story ever, right? <laughs> none of us think that. Some of you are still thinking that right now because I'm not doing a very good job. But, you know, you read this and you go, oh, like, what's this mean? But I love this passage I love this. He says, as the Spirit of God swells in you, 
Your life, which you used to have great control over, becomes the Lord's. He says, and the river that started as a trickling in the temple is headed towards the east. You know, for us, the east, we don't think anything of it. It's like, okay, what's that mean? But for the people of God, when Ezekiel had this vision, they knew exactly what this meant because all of their enemies lived to the east. It was the people from the east who had come and who had pillaged their cities, who had destroyed their temples, who had raped their women, who had taken their kids into slavery. It was the people from the east that had destroyed their lives. And there's something very interesting happening here. Ezekiel sees a picture of the church and something is bubbling up, not just in the temple, not just for the people of God, but for the people that had stood against them their whole lives. And the water begins, begins to run down the mountain of God with the people of God towards the enemies of God's people. I love the way that it keeps going. It says it runs through the desert. I don't know if you've ever been in the desert, but you're not picking apples in the desert, right? You're not eating oranges in the desert. There's not banana trees in the desert. He says, as we're going through the desert, there are fruit trees just blooming everywhere because the Spirit of God was there. He says, then it drops through the Arabah, verse 7, drops down into the Dead Sea, and the place that once was known for death now becomes the place of life. He says, one day people, fishermen, will gather on the shores and they will reel in fish of all kinds, all shapes, all sizes. He says, and this will happen because the water is flowing from the sanctuary. And the angel looks at him and he says, do you understand this? And I think the Lord is asking us this question as a church. He's going, guys, Ethos, 2012, Nashville, do you understand this? The culture has fallen apart. The church as an institution and as an organization so many times has fallen apart. He says, but you don't see things that I see them. There's a bubbling in the temple. And where there's a bubbling of the power and the presence of God, things always get better for the nations. He says, Ezekiel, do not give up. He says, do not give up. You may have been hurt by man. You may have been let down by organizations, but you will never be disappointed by Jesus. And this is the picture of the church that Ezekiel sees, and it radically alters the course of his life. You know, I was just thinking about this this week, and I, I love this vision because it just reminds me, every, every essence of this vision reminds me of the story of Jesus. You guys remember that story of Jesus? It's in Luke chapter 2. Jesus is just a baby. He's eight days old. Little baby Jesus. They take him to the temple, and they're having this big worship service in the temple, and no one in the temple notices that Jesus is there because he doesn't look like they think he's going to look and he doesn't talk yet and he's not acting like the way they think that the sovereign Lord of the universe is going to be. And so the people are there in the church and they are singing songs and they're, they're reading scriptures and they're offering sacrifices and they're completely, completely oblivious to the presence of God in their midst except for two people. Simeon and Anna, this old couple, bald heads, shriveled backs, you know, whatever it is that you want to imagine, they see them. Mary and Joseph coming into the temple and the Spirit of God lets them know it's Jesus. And all of a sudden, there's a bubbling in the temple of God again. For hundreds of years before Luke chapter two, the temple had been very religious but very devoid of God's presence. And now just like this, the Spirit of God was there, Jesus was there, the, the temple was trickling with the water and the life of God. I love the story of Jesus as he continues to move. If you don't know his story, it's amazing. As he grows up, he is this continual washing of water down the mountain of God into the lowest places of society, right? 
I love how Jesus is constantly hanging out with the people that nobody else hangs out with. He's eating meals with the people that nobody else is eating meals with. That He loves the people that no one else loved, that everybody had given up on. And Jesus is constantly like rushing water down the side of God's mountain, seeping into the crevices of the world. And the truth is, wherever Jesus showed up, life happened. Why? Because where Jesus is, resurrection thrives. And what started as a trickle in the temple as it flowed down the mountain of God began to revive the nations. This is what you see with the apostles, right? Twelve ordinary fishermen. They failed out of school. They got kicked out of school, so they went to work with their parents. And when they were teenagers, Jesus showed up and he touched them on the shoulder. He says, because the Spirit of God will be with you one day, I'm going to use you guys to start a revolution. The rest of the world looked at them. They went, eh, what's the big deal? It's 12 guys that flunked out of high school. And Jesus says, but you will have my spirit and you will do things that I've never done. 12 people become 120 men and their families hunkered down in a room in Acts chapter 2. Do you remember this story? Praying that the power of God would settle in that room in ways that would change the nations. And like this, what was a trickle becomes ankle deep. They find themselves in the streets testifying about the goodness of Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. And thousands of people come to Christ. Then tens of thousands, then hundreds of thousands, and then millions. And here we are, 2,000 years later, gathered in a bar in downtown Nashville. Why? Because there's been a bubbling in the temple that's running down the mountain of God, that's seeping into the crevices of the world for the glory of God and the good of his people. And what looks small in the eyes of man is the beginning of a revolution in the hands of God. And the angel looks at him and he says, do you understand this? He said, do you see that like, we're not just here singing songs this morning? We're not just here listening to some white dude teach out of a book that's old. We're, we're here because God is on the move, and when God is on the move, things change. I go, man, why, why haven't I given up on the church? Remember her asking me that. I mean, man, it's a great question. Why have I not given up on the church? Because Jesus has not given up on the church. Why have I not given up on the church? Man, because it wasn't my idea and it wasn't your idea and it wasn't some group's idea a long time ago. This was an idea that was born out of the heart of God and the mind of God for the glory of God and the people of God to bless the nations with the presence of God. He says what you don't see in a culture that is crumbling in a church that is struggling is that the essence of God's spirit, although it seems small now, is growing and where God's spirit is growing things change. This is what Jesus talked about in Matthew chapter 16. He looked at his disciples and he says, do you realize? He says, do you realize that I am going to build my church and the gates of hell cannot stop it? The interesting thing was where Jesus chose to have this conversation with his disciples was anywhere but the ordinary. He took them on this little field trip to this place called Caesarea Philippi. It was like the red light, red light district of Amsterdam. It was the strip in Las Vegas. It, it was Bourbon Street in New Orleans. Whatever you want to equate it with, it was kind of the place of debauchery in their culture. Jesus takes them there. He would have been fired from any church for taking the youth group there. He takes them there. He says, do you realize it's here in the crevices of the world that everybody else has given up on that I will build my church and the gates of hell can't stop it? And you can almost see the crazy look in Jesus' eye, can't you? He's like, who's in? <laughs> who's in? Because where the presence of God is bubbling up among the people of God, it blesses the nations and no one can stop it. No one can stop it.
They go, man, why haven't I given up on the church, man? Because Jesus, because Jesus is driving this ship. And organizations and people in the name of the church will let us down and hurt us. Some of you have been so unbelievably wounded by the church, and I hate that for you. But what I love in this vision, he says, even the places that once brought death now bring healing to the nations. He says, even the places that used to be known for their death. So some of you, you walk into a church building, and you go, man, this place is so dead. He says, even in those places, the life of God will spring up. Can you hear the presence of God bubbling ethos? And I love this. I love how Jesus redefines what the temple is as he's doing his ministry on earth because he understands how much bigger it is than a building. I don't know if you remember the conversation in John chapter four where Jesus is talking to a woman. She was the town whore. She slept with everybody. And everyone had given up on her and Jesus looks at her and not only did he not give up on her, he saw something in her that nobody else could see. She gives her life to Christ, and he looks at her, and the first question she asks, she said, where should I go worship? Do I go up on the temple that my people have, or do I go to the temple that your people have? And Jesus says, listen, one day the Spirit of God will be poured out in such a way that you will not think about my presence in regards to building. You will think about my presence in regard to my people. And this is what he promises. It's John chapter 7 where he says, one day when you receive the Holy Spirit, streams of living water will flow out of you. And where there was once death all around you in the culture you're in, people will drink from the waters of God because you, his people, will become his temple. It's 1 Peter chapter 2, where it says one day God is going to build a church that is not going to be built out of stones that have been cut from the ground. It's going to be built out of people who have been filled with his spirit for his glory, for the good of the world. He says God is building his house again. God is building his church again, and it's not going to look the way we think it's going to look, and it's not going to feel the way we think it's going to feel, but it's going to be so much better. And Jesus goes, who's in? Who's in? Because where there is a bubbling in the temple, it always serves the purpose of freeing and changing the nations. Here's a question that I've been wrestling with all week, and it's, what I want us to wrestle with as we take communion this morning is, you know, in order for the presence and the power of God to bubble up in this temple, in this group of people, the presence and the power of God has got to be bubbling up inside of you, God's temple, right? Right? Does that make sense? Like, in order for there to be something happening among us as a people, there has got to be something happening with you and the Lord when nobody else is watching, when the door is closed, when the TV is off, when your friends aren't around, when your house church isn't there, there's got to be something stirring and bubbling in you before we can worry about what's going to stir up and bubble in here before we can worry about what will happen in the nations. So my question for, for us, this is what I want us to think about as we take communion, is, is the presence and the power of God central in your temple is the power and the presence of God central in your temple, or are you still just attending worship services? When we leave this place like drops of living water walking down the steps of a bar, flooding into the streets, into the lowest places of the city, first ankle deep, then knee deep, then waist deep, until we find ourselves swimming in the deeper waters of God's grace. Not just for our church, but for those around us. Or will we continue to splash around in the kiddie pool? 
saying, God, we want your power and we want your presence, but as long as we're in control. Ezekiel said, man, one day, one day, there will be a church where people have been swept away by the power and the presence of God, and it won't just fill up the temple. It won't just fill up the place with great worship. It will bring healing to the nations. That's why I'm part of the church. I don't worship the church. I worship Jesus. And it's the life of Jesus that empowers and flows out of the heart of the church for the good of the world. I go, man, if there are a couple of us in here that can see the bubbling, that can see the water pouring out of the doorway, I believe God will start a revolution that none of us could ever take credit for, much less control. And his name will be glorified. I go, man, that's what I'm in this for. Let's pray.